Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. In my town growing up, there wasn't an arcade within walking distance. So if you wanted to go to play video games, you either had to get a ride from somebody or you had to count on one of the smaller stores that would have arcade games. There were two that were close enough to me that I could walk to. One was a pizza parlor. The other was a candy store. Yeah, we had a candy store in my town. I mostly played at the candy store, but occasionally would go to the pizza parlor if I had a little bit of extra money where I could buy a slice and sit down and play. The candy store was fairly progressive in the games it got, and it was the first place in my town to get Donkey Kong. Now, I was from a family of smokers, so I would go on cigarette runs for my family every day to the candy store. The store was a perfect combination of candy, cigarettes, and video games. What was great about going on these runs is I would get to keep the change. So I'd go up, buy three or four packs of cigarettes for members of my family and assorted neighbors. Usually, I would walk out with 50 cents to a dollar in change that I was allowed to keep, all prearranged. So, when Donkey Kong showed up, I would get three or four games of Donkey Kong for every run I would do. I was horrible at Donkey Kong, and yet I continued to play it again and again and again. I definitely became obsessed with it in the same way I was obsessed with Pac-Man. This candy store, which was so full of awesomeness, happened to attract a rougher element. And at one point, I remember getting on the game and a group of teenagers coming up behind me. They maybe were 14 or 15, guys with leather jackets. No, I didn't grow up in the 50s, although my town maybe was a little bit behind the times in some things. And they would push me around, they would try to mess up my game. Then, one day, I was up there playing, and one of the kids lit my jacket on fire while I was playing video games. Now, the jacket, which was a winter coat, must have came from Kmart or something, and it might have been that the outside layer was quite flammable, but the inside layer was fire retardant, because I didn't notice it first until I heard laughing, and then someone else was like, your jacket's on fire. Someone ran over and started hitting me in the back, and even one of the guys who was with the crazy people who were laughing started to knock it out, realizing, wow, we just lit this kid on fire. I freaked out, of course, and ran out, not finishing my game. I ran home as quick as I could, and before I got in the door, my one sister, who was a couple of years older than me, seemed to notice that I was upset, and she's like, well, what's wrong? I said, well, these kids lit me on fire up at the store. Now, my sister might be older than me, but she's maybe 5'3", five, 5'2". Five, she's not the tallest person in the world, but much like Jumpman, or as he came to be known, Mario, she showed no fear. She marched to the car, drove straight up to the store, walked right into the store, and with a cigarette in her mouth, she stared them all down, and they towered over her. She kind of looked like Wolverine, ready to pounce on these people. I kept waiting for the claws to come out. She got right in their faces, and I'd never seen anything like it. They were terrified of her, and from that point on, they actually never bothered me again. I continued to play Donkey Kong, and I continued to make runs to the store. Later on, I would actually get to know some of these guys, and we would laugh about it, and they would talk about how terrified they were of my sister. Now, I have played many video games and been to many arcades in my life, and it's good to have a video game that you can go to, but it's even better to have an older sister who you can count on. On today's show, we're going to talk about Donkey Kong. We're going to talk about the game's creation, its popularity, its massive success in America. As always, we've got a jam-packed program ahead of us. So without further ado, let's start the show. 
the story of the 1980s hit Donkey Kong actually starts in the late 70s. The man who would create Donkey Kong, Shigeru Miyamoto, had worked on a game called Radar Scope, and Radar Scope did pretty well in Japan. It did so well that the newly founded Nintendo of America decided to place a large order for it and bring it over to the United States. It took a bit to westernize the game, and by the time it got over to the United States, the buzz around it had died. When it landed in arcades, people found the game's audio annoying. It just wasn't going to fly here, and Nintendo of America was being stuck with thousands of unsold units. The president of Nintendo of America asked the CEO of Nintendo, who happened to be his father-in-law, to provide him with a new game to replace all these radar scope arcade games. He thought then that the cabinets could be repurposed to reflect this new game, thus saving lots of money. The CEO went to the game's designer, Miyamoto, and said, you better fix this game. So Miyamoto sat down and thought about it, and he said rather than try to tweak this game, what I'm going to do is design an entirely new game using the hardware from RadarScope. This new game would become Donkey Kong. Miyamoto did not work on the game alone. He was assigned a developer to help him along with the process. Nintendo's head engineer, Gunpei Yokoi, was asked to supervise the project. Now at the time, Nintendo was trying to get a license for the Popeye comic strip. Miyamoto really liked the love triangle between Bluto, Popeye, and Olive Oil, and he thought that that would make for a great game. That never worked out, but Miyamoto still liked the idea of a game that had a love triangle, and the concept for Donkey Kong is based on that love triangle. Bluto is the ape, Olive Oil was Lady, and Jumpman was Popeye. Now, the ape in the game became the title character because he was found to be the most compelling, and that's probably because Miyamoto decided to not make him a real strict villain. Instead, he wanted him to be the pet of the main character. In interviews that Miyamoto has given, he has said that his influences for the game were based on stories like Beauty and the Beast and King Kong. Donkey Kong was innovative. In fact, it was one of the first games where the storyline or the game preceded the programming and informed it and would set the stage for almost all video game development to follow. Besides the great story, another element that led to the success of Donkey Kong in North America was that it was targeted directly at North America. And that started right from the beginning. The head of Nintendo in Japan told Miyamoto that even the name of the game needed to be thought of from a North American style and he was quite insistent from the beginning that the working title of the game be in English and there's a lot of controversy about how that name came to be. As I mentioned it was quite obvious that the ape would be the star of this game so Miyamoto decided that they would name the game after the ape as opposed to the hero of the game. He came up with the name Donkey Kong. Now the controversy is around how he came up with that name. There's several competing stories. One is that it was meant to be called Monkey Kong, as in like King Kong, Monkey Kong, but it was misspelled or misinterpreted due to a blurred fax or bad telephone conversation. Another story claims that Miyamoto looked into a Japanese-English dictionary looking for something that would mean stubborn gorilla and saw the word donkey or stubborn or silly, and used the term Kong, which was a common Japanese slang for a gorilla. Yet another story is that the title was just made up by a third person who thought that the word donkey would just make the game sillier and give it a wider appeal. doesn't really matter. Either way, it seems like it was a happy accident that those two words came together and would take America by storm.
a little bit about the characters in the game. As I mentioned, Donkey Kong, the villain, is the pet of the carpenter in the game, whose name is Jumpman. And Jumpman's name was chosen because it had a similarity to the word Walkman and Pac-Man, which was a really popular game at the time. He would later be renamed Mario and turned into a plumber rather than a carpenter when Mario Brothers is released later. So what's the deal between Donkey Kong and Mario? The story goes that the carpenter mistreats the ape, Mario, being a little bit of a jerk, and Donkey Kong escapes and kidnaps Jumpman's girlfriend. And she's originally known as Lady, but is later renamed Pauline. The name Mario comes from the warehouse landlord of Nintendo of America, whose name was Mario Sagali. Lady's name change to Pauline comes courtesy of Polly Jane, who was the wife of Nintendo Redmond's Washington warehouse manager, Don James. So just peripheral people working on the game are immortalized forever by a digital work of art. One of the other things that sets Donkey Kong apart from other early video games is the graphical detail. Say, for instance, when Jumpman is killed, Donkey Kong actually smiles, and Lady has really a good amount of detail on her dress. You can make out Mario's overalls. There's just a lot of love put into this game. So Miyamoto had great characters, a compelling name, the support of his company, and he really innovated on this title. Donkey Kong is considered by many to be one of the earliest examples of what's called a platform game. And most of us are very familiar with a platform game. A platformer is a genre of video games that is characterized by jumping to and from suspended platforms or over obstacles. It seems so common now, but at that point, really only one other game, Space Panic, could be considered a platformer. The architecture of Donkey Kong is very interesting. The game is divided into four different one-screen stages, and each one represents 25 meters of the structure that Donkey Kong has climbed onto, which I find interesting that they use meters since it was coming to North America. I don't even remember questioning the fact that it was in meters as a kid, but that might have been during the time when they were trying to get the metric system into America. Someday. Someday. The final screen of the game happens at 100 meters, but the game continues to get harder and harder as it goes along. Screen 1 has Jumpman or Mario scaling a seven-story construction site made of crooked girders. He climbs ladders while Donkey Kong rolls barrels towards him, and he must jump over the barrels or whack them with a hammer. If he can get through that, he gets to screen two, the 50 meter mark. In this one, Jumpman has to climb a five-story structure with conveyor belts. Each of these conveyor belts is meant to transport a pan of cement. This screen is sometimes referred to as the factory screen. Level three has Jumpman riding up and down elevators while avoiding fireballs and these jumping spring weights. Those bouncing weights are the hardest thing in the game to avoid, and they emerge from the top and drop near the rightmost elevator. Level four, Jumpman has to remove eight rivets from a support structure that Donkey Kong is standing on. In this one, the moving fireballs are the primary obstacle. When the final rivet is removed, Donkey Kong falls and the hero is reunited with Lady. This is the final screen of each level. And then of course you move on to the next level and things get harder and harder and harder. When a player finally reaches the 22nd stage, and the 117th screen, a kill screen happens. Why a kill screen? The problem has to do with this. The amount of time allowed for any given screen is determined 
algorithmically during play by whatever level the player is on. Time has a maximum value of 8,000. When the player reaches the 22nd level, the algorithm that determines these numbers is overwhelmed, and this causes the timer to be set so low there is simply not enough time for the screen to possibly be completed. Although the kill screen has seeped into our culture, only once has an actual kill screen been broadcast live, and that was Steve Wiebe's attempt at E3 2009 when he yet again attempted to beat Billy Mitchell's Donkey Kong high score. I watched it live, and sadly he was not successful. In addition to having a goal of saving Lady at the end of every screen, there's also score involved in the game. You score points in the game by leaping over obstacles, destroying objects with your hammer, and collecting bonus items. They have hats, parasols, and purses. Now, at the very beginning of the game, the first time you get 7,000 points, you get a free guy, and then the next two times you score 7,000 points, you get two free guys. Now, if you've watched King of Kong, you might realize that the highest score that was ever set on this game was recorded by Billy Mitchell, who recorded a score of 1 million... 50,200 points on June 26, 2007. And although Steve Wiebe keeps trying to defeat the score, he still is in second place. His best recorded score is 1,049,100, and he scored that on March 23, 2007. Briefly, he was the Donkey Kong World Champion. The game had really come together. Miyamoto had challenged the developers working on the game to make a very compelling game, and they had answered back with interesting ideas, trying new things. In fact, when Miyamoto came to them and said, well, I want to have four different levels, they at first balked and said, well, that means we're making this game four different times. We're in fact making four different games. But Miyamoto stuck to his guns, and they came to realize that this guy was thinking ahead and into the future of what gaming was going to be, and they programmed it, and 20,000 lines of code later, they had Donkey Kong. The head of Nintendo saw the game, saw people trying it out, and could see that it was going to do well, and he called the head of Nintendo operations in the U.S. and told them to secure a trademark and prepare for testing. When the game originally arrived in America, the sales manager disliked it because it was so different from the maze games and shooters that were very popular at the time. The distributors and the lawyer both thought that the game's strange title would turn off American players, but the head of Nintendo's U.S. operations swore that this was going to be big and kept pushing it forward. They translated the game cabinets and character names for the American audience and convinced two bars in Seattle, Washington to set up Donkey Kong machines for its patrons. The manager of the bar saw the games and was like, well, this is not like the games we usually have here, but all right, we'll give it a shot. For those two games, sales were almost immediately at $30 a day for a week straight, and the bar requested more units. And so we come back to Radar Scope. A crew of people in the Redmond headquarters, consisting of about five people, set out to gut 2,000 surplus radar scope machines and convert them into Donkey Kong machines with motherboards and power supplies brought from Japan. Now these early machines are identified because they're red and they're very popular amongst collectors nowadays. They worked day and night and the game officially went on sale in June of 1981. The game was a blockbuster hit. The initial 2,000 units sold out almost immediately and more orders were put in. So popular was it that they began manufacturing the electronic components in Washington because waiting for the shipments to come over from Japan was taking way too long. By October of 1982, 
Donkey Kong was selling 4,000 units a month. By June of 1982, they had already sold 60,000 Donkey Kong games. By October of 1981, Donkey Kong was selling 4,000 units a month. And by late June of 1982, Nintendo had sold 60,000 Donkey Kong games overall. And that earned them $180 million. In the second year of its release, it made an additional $100 million and remained Nintendo's top seller into the summer of 1983. Donkey Kong Mania had come to America. By late June of 1982, Donkey Kong's massive success prompted more than 50 companies in the United States and Japan to license the game's characters. They appeared on cereal boxes, pajamas, toothpaste, comic books, you name it, they were there. The animation studio Ruby Spears produced a Donkey Kong cartoon for the Saturday Morning Supercade. One of my earlier podcasts talks about that, which ran on CBS for two seasons. If you haven't heard that podcast or seen this cartoon, it involved Mario and Pauline chasing Donkey Kong, who has escaped from a circus, and of course would lead to the Donkey Kong Jr. cartoon. We'll talk about the sequels to Donkey Kong in a little bit. Now, Donkey Kong had a very powerful effect on the console industry in the United States. Another successful video game company, Taito, offered to buy out the rights to Donkey Kong outright, but Nintendo turned them down flatly and was approached instead by Coleco and Atari. Now, in an interesting twist, Nintendo chose Coleco to make all its tabletop version and cartridge versions of Donkey Kong. And the reason for this is that they thought that Coleco was a hungrier company and would work harder, which is pretty interesting. Nintendo received a undisclosed lump sum from Coleco for the rights and would receive $1.40 per game cartridge sold and $1 per tabletop unit that was sold. The Coleco version of Donkey Kong is pretty faithful compared to other ports that would come out later. And one of the big differences is that it lacks the springboards that would jump down on you on the elevator level, which actually makes the game a little bit easier. Coleco did a smart thing and bundled Donkey Kong with their ColecoVision. The bundled ColecoVision units went on sale in July of 1982. Because of this, ColecoVision's sales doubled to $500 million and their earnings quadrupled to $40 million. So it was a really good deal for them. Now, I'm not sure what the undisclosed amount that they had to pay up front, but this was a great deal for ColecoVision and was sometimes the, the deal maker back in the day when people were trying to decide what console they wanted. Donkey Kong was that powerful of a draw. ColecoVision would create ports for Atari and in television. Atari would eventually get the rights to distribute the floppy disk version of Donkey Kong, which would cause a lot of controversy when ColecoVision decided to make a port of its popular game for the Atom computer. ColecoVision just said, well, this is a cartridge-based game for Atom, not a computer-based game. And since that was the case, this was not a violation of Nintendo's license with Atari, and the Atari PC version of Donkey Kong fell through. The game has been on many types of consoles and systems. There was a watch version of the game. There was, of course, the Coleco tabletop version. There was a port for the Atari 7800, the Commodore 64, the Apple II, the Commodore VIC-20, the Famicom Disk System, the ZX Spectrum, and it still goes on today on the Wii's virtual console. The game was so popular that it inspired a host of clones. Most notably was one made by Tiger Electronics. Tiger obtained a license to use the name King Kong from Universal Studios. And under this title, Tiger created a handheld game with a scenario and gameplay based on Donkey Kong. 
This went on despite the fact that Universal was already suing Nintendo over the similarity of Donkey Kong to their movie King Kong. It was a crazy battle. In the end, Universal tried to prove that people were often confused between the two titles and used phone surveys and print media to try to prove it. However, the court found that Nintendo had not violated their copyright. And Nintendo was awarded $1.8 million for legal fees and lost revenues and expenses. In the end, this court case is important because it showed that a video game company could stand up to a larger entertainment industry entity. Of course, this did not stop Nintendo from trying to sue everyone who made anything similar to Donkey Kong. There was this one game called Crazy Kong that was manufactured by Falcon that would always show up in arcades in my home state of New Jersey. And in some of those arcades, it was actually labeled Kong Gorilla and would often be right next to the Donkey Kong machine, which was always weird. You staring at Donkey Kong and then looking at Kong Gorilla going, wait, wait, is this the same game? And should I put my quarters in here? Usually I waited for the Donkey Kong game. In 1983, Sega created a really interesting clone of Donkey Kong called Congo Bongo, which had an isometric perspective, but still the gameplay is very similar to the original Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong would spawn multiple sequels, Donkey Kong Jr. and Donkey Kong 3. Donkey Kong Jr. is about Donkey Kong's son, and Donkey Kong 3 has Donkey Kong facing off against a new foe, Stanley, who is a bug man in a greenhouse. Another great game. Most importantly, Donkey Kong would have a spin-off, Mario Brothers. And Mario Brothers is a huge industry. Mario has become as well-known as almost any other spokes character for any company. Mario is world-known nowadays. Not bad for a character who's named after a Walkman and another video game. Donkey Kong would go on to appear in Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Jungle Beat, Mario vs. Donkey Kong, Mario vs. Donkey Kong 2, Donkey Kong Barrel Blast, Smash Brothers Brawl, and so on and so on and so on. And it didn't stop in video games. In 1982, Buckner and Garcia created the cult hit Do the Donkey Kong, which found its way onto American radios for at least two years. The game has been referenced on many popular TV shows, and in 2007, a documentary about competitive classic arcade games, it was called King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, and it became a sleeper hit. And that movie involves a man named Steve Wiebe trying to defeat the current Donkey Kong champion at the time, Billy Mitchell. Why was Donkey Kong popular? Well, it was really kind of the first of its kind. There might have been other games that were similar, but it was the first game to be a platform game. It had compelling gameplay. It had archetypes that we could identify with, and it came at the right time, right when the video game boom was really hitting the shores of America. Personally, I think that its legacy was guaranteed when it embraced archetypes for inspiration in the game. Because throughout history, we've seen the story of Beauty and the Beast retold, be it in Beauty and the Beast, the movie, Beauty and the Beast, the cartoon, or King Kong. Now, thanks to Miramoto's foresight, you can add another beast to that luminary lineup, Donkey Kong. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website 
at www.retroist.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and on Facebook at facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks for listening to the show and I hope you have a great weekend. Do 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 loop. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.